Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Shamil Chandaria. Shamil is a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, a technologist, and an academic with multidisciplinary research interests spanning computational neuroscience, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, and the philosophy and science of human well-being. He got his PhD at the London School of Economics in mathematical modeling of economic systems, and he later completed a master's in philosophy from University College London, where he developed an interest in the philosophy of science and the philosophical issues related to biology and neuroscience and ethics. In 2018, Shamil helped endow the Global Priorities Institute at Oxford University, and in 2019, he was a founder of the Center for Psychedelic Research in the Department of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. He's also funding research on the neuroscience of meditation at Harvard University and the University of California, Berkeley. And Shamil and I spoke about many of our intersecting interests, with the main focus being on how the brain constructs a vision of the self and the world. We discussed the brain from first principles, Bayesian inference, the hierarchy of predictive processing in the brain, how vision is constructed, psychedelics and neuroplasticity, beliefs and prior probabilities, the interaction between psychedelics and meditation, the risks and benefits of psychedelics, my recent experience with MDMA, non-duality, love, gratitude, and bliss, the self-model, the Buddhist concept of emptiness, human flourishing, effective altruism, and other topics. And now I bring you Shamil Chandaria. I am here with Shamil Chandaria. Shamil, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's a great uh, honor to be on. So I, I forget how I discovered you. I think I saw you in conversation with Will McCaskill the young philosopher who um, I'm a big fan of and who's been on the podcast several times. And it just seemed to me that just based on your conversation with him, that you and I have a, an unusual number of topics we intersect on. Uh, and uh, I, I think you, just judging from what I've seen of you, you you've, you've arrived at these various topics by different routes than I have. So it'll be interesting to hear your story. But you know, briefly, I think we are both very interested in the brain and the nature of mind, you know, both as it can be understood through neuroscience and, and also through first-person methods like meditation and psychedelics. You, are, you also have uh, a lot of experience with artificial intelligence, which is an interest and concern of mine, and um, also effective altruism and considering topics like existential risk and you know, other long-term challenges. Uh, there's just a lot here. so. Um, Perhaps you can just summarize your journey into some or all of these areas. How have you come to focus? What, what are you focusing yeah. on and how have you come to focus on these things? Yeah, so you're right. You know, we actually, I think, share, um, there's a huge amount of overlap. In fact, funnily enough, I think we first met in Puerto Rico. Uh, if you remember that conference yeah. oh, in interesting. 2015. So I was there and I mean, we may have had a short conversation. I, I'm, I was a big fan of waking up the book in those days. So Nice. Okay, so I, forgive me, because I'm not aware of having met you, but I, it's very likely we did meet because um, it was not that large a group, and, and that was yeah, an interesting I conference. Yeah, I think se 70 people, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, that was just before, well, I was already at the Future of Humanity Institute there, 
um, where, you know, Nick Bostrom and others are. But uh, yeah, so there's so many threads to the story. But I, I'm surprised because actually I thought you must have discovered me by seeing this talk that I gave called The Bayesian Brain and Meditation. Mm, no, I don't. I, I, I've since seen that talk or, a, or at least a podcast with you discussing that talk. I, I now forget. But yeah, your discussion with Will at first. Okay, yeah, well, so that's, that's obviously something we'll get into. That's the, the big thing, which has kind of gone, you know, become very central in my thinking on kind of how does meditation work. But let's, let's just uh, rewind. Yeah, so I have a kind of a mathematical background. My PhD was in um, mathematical economics, actually using techniques of like stochastic optimal control, which actually become later the mathematics behind reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. which is obviously central in AI. And so I've done so many th- different things in my life, including you know finance and technology. But but I think that. I joined DeepMind as a strategic advisor in 2015 and was there until 2021. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you, one of my central concerns, of course, is AI safety, but I'm also interested on a technical side and kind of, you know, really one of the, I mean, I have lots of interest in AI, but one of the real interests is to understand how the brain works. Because I think that um, machine learning in AI has been, is, is actually a very good way to start thinking about how the brain works. And at the same time, I was also a research fellow at the Institute of Philosophy at London University. And looking at this kind of intersection between neuroscience and philosophy. And at the time, I think, you know, back in 2000. 13, 14, you know, they asked me, since I was the kind of mathematical guy there, you know, there's this thing called the free energy principle coming out of Carl Friston's lab. And, you know, can you explain how this really works? You know, you know about entropy and stuff like that. Uh, So I started really getting into it. And it was very interesting because, of course, it's deeply connected with with information theory and machine learning. Mm and to some extent, I would say I now take the position, and I think many neuroscientists do, that it's the closest thing we have to a kind of general algorithm of what might be going on in the brain from a big picture perspective. And as I, as I kind of got into it more and more, the more I thought that, wow, this is very similar to you know, what I'm going through in my meditation journey and kind of what the central ideas of Buddhism and Eastern spiritual traditions are. And, you know, because, because essentially, I guess we'll get into this, but what seems to come out is that really the brain is having to construct or fabricate or simulate a world, a phenomenal world and a phenomenal self. And the free energy principle kind of goes through like, you know, how does it, how do we do that? Mm. So, so that was very interesting. And then interestingly, as a, in a deep mind, I started really looking at some of these architectures, these uh, unsupervised learning architectures uh, using deep neural networks. And I started to be able to 
understand the free energy principle a lot better than I did before. And, and, and I think in a, in a much more heuristic and um, practical way compared to the sort of usual explanations in neuroscience, come, you know, which are notoriously difficult, mm-hmm. sometimes using tensor calculus and all sorts of things. So yeah, so that's, that's some of the background, you know, bringing in the neuroscience and meditation. So did you ever work with Friston? Uh, yeah, well, I continue to do. I mean, so, well, in fact, I was with him at a workshop, I think about a month ago, on computational neurophenomenology. And uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Very smart and quantitative neuroscientist. Yeah, I think the mo- is he the most cited neuroscientist at this point? It's I I I believe so. Yeah. I believe yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, a couple more background questions before we jump in. One, to, just to remind people that DeepMind is the AI company that was acquired by Google that gave us Alpha Zero and AlphaGo and AlphaFold and and made some of these initial breakthroughs with uh, deep learning in in recent years that that have really been the core, I would say, of the, the renaissance in AI. I mean, the, the, people are talking more about open AI at the moment as a result of ChatGPT, but DeepMind really has been the front runner for several years in AI. And, yeah, and, uh, and, and it's, it's joined together with, um, with Google Brain right. now, so it's back again as Google DeepMind. Yeah, yeah. How did you come to meditation, and, and what practices have you been doing, and who were your what teachers have been important for you? Yeah, so that's, that's actually very central to my life. I started meditating 35 years ago. I write when I started my PhD. I initially started with TM, which was the way, you know, back then in the 80s. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, pretty much a lot of the early meditators started with. And I found that, you know, actually very useful. And, and as my practice, as I've gone through my practice, I've only come to understand that it was actually a really good foundation. And then I guess maybe around 20 years ago, I started my sort of first Buddhist retreats. And then yeah, maybe, maybe um, seven or eight years ago, I, was, I started really spending a lot of time at a retreat center in the UK called Gaia House, mm-hmm. where Rob Berbea was the resident teacher. And I was very influenced by, by his kind of framework on emptiness and his meditation practices. Yeah, unfortunately, I never met him. I discovered him after he died. He died, unfortunately, quite young. And he has this wonderful book on emptiness, The Scene That Frees. And it's, yeah. uh, he really seemed like he was quite a gem. He, he, he really was. I mean, I, he's actually, I think, exactly the same age as me to the month. Mm. I think that he, yeah, unfortunately, by the time I was there, he was a lot of the time pretty sick. So I kind of never really got to sat with, sit with him too much. But I was still, you know, in the, in the orbit. And, you know, and, and my meditation practice deepened a lot into the jhanas and other kind of techniques and then mm. other emptiness uh, meditations of Robert Bear. And then I suppose in the last three, four years, I, I kind of felt that what my practice really needed was a move to non-dual 
non-dual style. And so I did a retreat with Lot Kelly, but then pretty much a little after that, started working with Michael Taft, who is a mm-hmm. non-dual teacher in a kind of, I mean, he, he's, he's non-dual style, but not, not um, under any particular lineage. Right. And that's, that was perfect for me because he's very, his experience is very broad and he's, he can kind of integrate many styles. And so, um, yeah, I've been, been working in, with him. So yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long and interesting journey. And along the way, something that we, we haven't yet touched on, I also have been very involved in the psychedelic uh, kind of renaissance. Mm-hmm. I'm also a research fellow at Imperial College where, where Robin Carhart Harris used to be. Yeah. And um, Robin's now, of course, in San Francisco, but UCSF. And actually, I worked quite closely with Robin and Carl Friston on the kind of computational model of what might be going on with psychedelics, the Rebus model. So, you know, which basically uses a predictive processing framework. Nice. Nice. And, and you funded some of that research, right? Didn't you? Weren't you yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's yet another research because apart from being like on the, on the science side and the research side, I'm also another hat is being a philanthropist. Just as it happens because of my career, you know, I, I, I'm able to be, you know, have the financial resources to also have a philanthropic role. And um, I take it, I'm very influenced obviously by effective altruism. And one of the kind of tenets of effective altruism is that, you know, we want to be in areas that are kind of neglected. And when I was, and, you know, these funding, you know, when I sort of helped to set up the, um, the first psychedelic research center uh, in the world, you know, that was, it was still pretty underfunded. Right, right. Well, okay, well, so we have m- many things on the menu here. Let, let's start with the brain and uh, i guess uh we should probably you know some of these topics are fairly complex and and some of the interesting details are in the math and and we obviously are are working with audio only so there's no visual aids here but i think it's it would be worth trying to explain what you mean by the free energy principle uh, what you mean by you know, predictive inference or predictive coding. Part of that picture is also the work you've done on Bayesian inference in the brain. We might, just to make things difficult, we might also mention integrated information theory. Come at that tangle however you want, but what do you think is the best hypothesis at the moment describing what the brain is doing. Yeah. And you know, we might want to start by differentiating that from everyone's common sense idea of what, what the science probably says about what the brain is doing. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's, that's great. So why don't we look at the brain from first principles, and then maybe we can later apply it to meditation and spirituality. So the thing is that, you know, maybe 20 years ago, the consensus of you know, what the brain was doing was it was kind of taking bottom-up sensory data, sensory information, and kind of processing it up a stack. And then eventually the brain would know what was, would figure out what was going on. And that's, that uh, view of 
um, what the brain is doing is in fact precisely upside down hmm. according to the latest theory of how the brain works. And I think the, the, you know, the way to start at this question is really from first principles. Really, it really does help to look at it philosophically, which is, you know, we're an organism with this central processing unit, the brain, which is enclosed in a kind of dark cell within the, within the skull. Mm. I mean, we, we and are already it, brains in vats. You know, we, right. we are already thought experiments. Exactly, exactly. And all this brain has access to is some noisy time series data, some, some dots and dashes coming in, you know, sort of from the nervous system. Now, how on earth is it going to figure out what is going on in the world? Before you proceed further, this is, I love the, the angle you're taking here, but let's just reiterate what is meant by, by that, because it, it's, it, it can be difficult to form an intuition about just how strange our circumstance is. I mean, we, you know, we open your eyes and you see the world, or you seem to see the world, and people lose sight of, of the significance of you know, light energy being transduced into electrochemical energy that is not, it is not vision, right? It is not, it, after it hits your retina, you're not dealing with light anymore. And it's, this has to be a reconstruction. And we're, we're now going to talk about the details of that reconstruction. But um, to say that we're brains in vats, right, and, and being piped with electrochemical signals divorced from how experience seems, you know, out there in the, in the world that it just seems given to us, that's not hyperbole. It really is, you know, there is a, a fundamental break here, at least in, in how yeah. we conceive of our sectioning of reality based on, our, on what our nervous system is. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I don't know how deep you want to go with this, but actually you can even start before that, which is from the philosophical problem which is, you know, what Plato and Immanuel Kant kind of po pointed to, which is that we only know our appearances, our experience. We have no contact with reality. Mm. Most people's common sense view is that, oh, look, we're looking out at the world through little windows in the, you know, in the front of our, our, our skulls, and we're seeing trees as they really are. Now, of course, that cannot be true for precisely the, the reasons that, that, that you said. We're just receiving some noisy, random electrical signals coming in. And the brain has never seen reality as it is. I was going to, you know, the tree as it is in itself, if that makes any sense. Now, what the brain has to do is figure out the causes of its sensory data. In other words, it's trying to figure out what is causing its sensory data so it can get some grip on the environment. And that, of course, is important from an evolutionary perspective, because if we don't know what's going on in the environment, we won't know where the food is and we won't know where the tiger is. So we need to find out the causes of our sensory data. You know, and this is ultimately, formally, exactly the statistical inference problem, the Bayesian inference problem. And Bayesian inference is 
trying to figure out the probability that given my sensory data, I'm seeing a tree. Okay. Now, as we said, it turns out that the brain can't solve this problem because actually formally solving, you know, the Bayesian inference problems turns out for technical reasons to be computationally explosive. So what evolution has to do and what we have to do in artificial intelligence is use another algorithm. It's called approximate Bayesian inference. And the way you solve it, because Bayesian inference is so difficult, the way you actually solve it is going at it backwards. And what you have to do is you essentially have to have all this data come in and try to learn what you think you're seeing. And from what you think you are seeing, you then simulate the pixels that you would be seeing if your guess is correct. So if I think I'm seeing a tree, what your brain then has to do is go through something called a generative model and actually simulate the sensory data that it would be seeing if this was indeed a tree. Now, that is incredible because what it means is that, well, you know, the the upshot of that, just to cut to the chase, what, this is the real kind of what's called the neurophenomenological hypothesis, which is that in fact, what we experience, if we're aware of it, is our internal simulation, is precisely that internal generative model. Now, you might just then conclude, well, we're just hallucinating, we're just simulating, how do we have any grip on reality? And this is where the free energy principle comes in. It says that, you know, what we have to do is we have to simulate what we think is going on, but it's not any old simulation. It's a simulation that minimizes the prediction error from the output of your simulation and the few bits of sensory data that we get. In other words, what we actually do with the sensory data is use it to calibrate our simulation model, our generative model. And there is another part of the free energy principle, which is it, it turns out that minimizing prediction error isn't good enough. It turns out we also have to have some prior guesses, some prior probabilities about what we're experiencing. In other words, you know, as I grow up, you know, through childhood and, you know, as, as you're enculturated, you come to learn that there are things like trees. And, and so you, there's a kind of a high prior probability of finding trees in your environment. Now, what you want to do is you want to have a simulation, which is minimizing the prediction error with the, raw, with the sensory data, but also minimizing the informational distance between the output of your generative model, the simulation, and your priors. In other words, you want a simulation that is as close to what you would normally expect before seeing the sensory data. So this is really what the free energy is. The free energy has two terms. The first is roughly kind of a prediction error. And the second is an informational distance to the prior of what you'd be expecting. So it turns out that we can actually do approximate Bayesian inference, which is the mathematically optimal thing to do, if we simulate the world and use that simulation to, and, and create the simulation in such a way that minimizes the prediction error with the sensory data that we get, and also minimizes the deviation from, the divergence from our prior 
probability distribution, prior probabilities. So that's kind of the free energy in a nutshell. And it's kind of, as I said, it's very interesting because it helps us think about phenomenology, which is, you know, what I'm interested in because, like, you know, it's if we, if we open our eyes, as you say, and we find the world just appear in front of us, you know, what is this? What is this experience that we're having? And the answer is, it's a kind of, we're somehow aware of our internally generated uh, model of the world. And uh, that model happens to be kind of calibrated correctly with the sensory data. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a great overview. I, I, maybe I'll track back through some of that just to give people a few handholds here and, and also give them areas they may uh, do some further research if they're interested. So, so many people will have heard of Bayesian statistics or you know, Bayes' theorem, and uh, it's actually a pretty simple piece of mathematics that it's worth looking up because it's, unlike many equations, you, uh, once you track through the terms, it does uh, repay one's intuitive sense of how things should be here. I mean, this is a a mathematical description of, of how we revise our probability estimates based on evidence. And so it, when, you, when you look at this equation, I just pulled it up to remind myself of its actual structure. If you want, I can just do a little very simple example. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, yeah. I was imagining something like, you know, the, what's the probability that it's raining given that the street is wet, you know? And, yeah. And like, so, I, I, I mean, I'll stick, to, I'll stick to the brain and the tree sure. and the data. But yeah. Yeah. So, so what? What Bayes' theorem says, to think about our, our tree in the brain example, you know, what it's, it's giving you a formula for calculating the probability that of there being a tree given your sensory data, okay? In fact, it's calculating, you know, Bayesian inference, the way we're doing in the free energy is calculating the whole probability distribution. But you can just think of it that what we're trying to calculate is the probability that what you're seeing is a tree given the sensory data that's coming through to you. And what Bayes' theorem says is that you can calculate that probability by going at it in a kind of a backwards way, which is you can say it's equal to the likelihood of the data. And that, that's roughly saying, how likely is it that I would be seeing exactly this sensory data if it was indeed a tree? times another term called the prior probability, which is what's the prior probability of seeing trees? Mm. Okay. So those are the two main terms of Bayes' theorem, the likelihood of the data, which is what's the probability of seeing the data, this particular data give, you know, on the basis that it's from a tree. And the second term is the prior, which is the probability of seeing trees in general. And then these two terms are just divided by a normalizing term, which is which is very simple. It's just, what's the probability in general of seeing this particular sensory data? So that just, that's just there to make sure the probabilities add up to one. Hmm. Right. One now, thing I'll flag here is that this connects with some very common reasoning errors of the sort that Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky pointed out, like base rate neglect. For the prior probability of seeing a tree, given that you're, you're walking someplace on Earth, is very high. But the prior probability of seeing a, a spaceship or 
a lion or something else is is lower and we it's only against those background probabilities that we can finally judge how likely it is that our our perceptions are veridical right i mean they, right. and and neglecting the, that you know what is called base rate is a source of uh, some very right. often comic fact, reasoning errors. In fact, in fact, if I can draw it back to the brain, and that's a great example to illustrate it exactly, because because this goes to the heart of uh, the free energy principle and how predictive processing and active inference works. Which is okay. So you're looking down the street and you see, you know, it's kind of a little foggy, but you see this this four legged animal coming up the street and. Actually, it kind of looks like it's it's it looks like a lion. Uh, the probability that the sensory data is coming from a lion is actually higher than the probability that this sensory data is coming from a dog. Okay, so let's just take that as given that mm-hmm. in fact it's it's. However, the prior probability of seeing a lion is way way lower than seeing a dog. And so in fact, uh, and this, this, this can be actually, you know, this is tested in, in lots of experiments. In fact, you will perceive that as a dog. You will actually perceive it as a dog um, because that's the way Bayesian inference works out. Now, actually, there's a slight wrinkle to this, which is, uh, well, you know, which, which gets into the nitty gritty, the free energy principle. If it wasn't a foggy day, and you get a really clear read on the sensory data, okay, then the weight of that likelihood of the data term will take precedence over the prior. Mm. So it will actually overrule the prior. So it doesn't mean that, you know, you're just constrained by your priors forevermore. It's just a way of weighting the sensory data with the prior probabilities. And, um, you know, if it's a foggy day, the sensory data is lowly weighted. Technically, we say the it's got low precision, mm-hmm. uh, which is the inver- inver- inverse of variance. And yeah, that's, that's a really great example of uh, how the Bayesian inference actually works in the brain. Okay, so just to give some neuroanatomical plausibility to this picture. So the, again, the common sense view of the science here is that we have a world. Let's stick to vision because I think it's the, the most intuitive. We have a world which we see with our open eyes. and the way we see it is that you know, the light hits the retina and then it, it gets transduced into uh, electrochemical energy in the brain and transits through various brain areas. And along the way, various features of the visual scene are detected and encoded. So there, there are neurons that respond to straight lines. There are cortical columns in, in the in visual cortex that build up a, a more complex and, and abstract image, and you know, eventually you get to some cell in the cortex that responds to faces rather than anything else, and even uh, you know, you'll get cells that respond to specific faces, like the fabled uh, grandmother cell, or I think there was one experiment about 25, 30 years ago that, that showed that there were cells that were responding to the face of, of Bill Clinton uh, and not any other. And so you have this kind of one-way feed-forward picture of a mapping of the world, and yet in in your description here are are seeming to reverse the causality. Uh, One interesting piece of neuroanatomical trivia is that we have something like 
ten times the number of connections going top-down rather than bottom-up from returning to visual cortex from the frontal lobes. That has always been somewhat inscrutable. That you know, we, we know that you can modify the, the activity and even structure of visual cortex by learning, right? So you can learn to see the world differently, and that learning largely takes place frontally or, you know, or in, in areas of cortex that are not strictly limited to vision, and yet they connect back to visual cortex. And so you, you imagine what, what is required neurologically to learn to recognize, you know, let's say you, you become a radiologist and you, you learn to read CAT scans, say. That learning has to be physically inscribed somewhere, and, and, and we find that the changes propagate all the way down to visual cortex. There's a picture of layers, some of these deeper layers that are above vision are now encoding a model of the world on your account that is predictive, that is making guesses, uh, that is a kind of, I I believe uh, Anil Seth, uh, when he was on this podcast, described it as a, a controlled hallucination. It's very much like what the dreaming brain is doing, except in waking life, it is constrained by visual inputs to the system of the sort that you just described. And, right. and we're getting this error term in predictive coding. So maybe you can kind of fill in the gap I've created here. What, what are these deeper layers of the network doing? And how is this reversal of, you know, that this is now a, a feedback story more than it is a feed-forward story? How, how does that change our sense, or how might it change our sense of the role that uh, our kind of worldview and, and, and self-model plays in determining the character of our experience. Right. Great. So exactly as you say that, you know, it's kind of always been a bit of a mystery why there are 10 times as, as many feedback neurons as there are kind of feed forward in some of these systems. And the picture that we just talked about where the generative model, the simulation model, actually points down from the higher cortical areas towards the low-level inputs, the where the sense data is coming in. Now, in fact, you know, so so one way to think about this this model is that we we've got this kind of generative model, which starts with our priors, what we think is going on, and makes a simulation, and what flows up the, the feed-forward part is just the prediction errors. So the prediction errors say, look, your model's a little wrong here because you know it's different. So then the model will be adjusted so to minimize the prediction errors. Now, it's not just one huge model going all the way from top to bottom. As you intimated, the scheme that, that is now thought to arise is something called predict is hierarchical predictive processing. So it's essentially that you have a whole series of low-level models near the data. You know, the first layers of the visual cortex might be, you know, having, you know, models that are detecting um, edges and corners. And then, you know, you, you, you build up from there exactly like you do in a neural network where Higher layers in the, in the network are essentially processing higher level features, except that these are all being driven down by these priors that are generating 
uh, what we would expect to see. And all that's flowing up, the funny thing is that the data actually never flows up the brain. All that's flowing up is the prediction errors up this feedforward network. What's coming down is the output of the generative model. So the brain is only generating what it thinks it's seeing. And there is no actually what we're seeing. It's just prediction errors flow up and say, can you please adjust it? There's a large prediction error here. So what we think is going on is that we have these kind of models that sit one on top of another. And the higher level model sends down, you know, is where the priors come from. Now you might ask, well, where do the priors of that higher level model come from? Well, they come from priors um, a layer above. And, you know, we don't know how many layers in this hierarchy there are, but, you know, there might be something like half a dozen layers uh, in the hierarchy. And right at the top of the hierarchy, you know, we, we get things like concepts and, you know, um, multisensory integration concepts and, you know, reasoning and language. Maybe in the middle layers of this hierarchy, we get things like faces and motion. And, and at the low levels of the hierarchy, we get these very raw, unfabricated parts of the sensory formation mm. percepts, low-level sensory percepts. Shamil, out of curiosity, how many layers are deep learning networks working with now? Well, <laughs> like in the transformer level, you know, le- uh, model that's behind, um, you know, ChatGPT and, and, and Google's BARD, mm. they're like, you know, close to 100, you know, maybe 95 or 125, depending on the particular architecture. Mm-hmm. So there are, you know, there are a lot. That, that, that being said, you know, obviously the brain has kind of, is, is, is way more parallel and, and complex ar- architecture, I would guess, than, yeah. than some of these neural networks. But, but hierarchy is key. And I think that's precisely why you're able to get such sophisticated behavior out of some of these large language models. But, but you know, we've known for, for over a decade that neural networks work in, you know, use generative models, uh, unsupervised neural networks work in the same way as, 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 as the brain. And they extract these features like edges and corners and then noses and eyes and, and, and mouths and ears, and then whole faces, you know, further up the hierarchy. So that's, that's the way that, you know, we think that the brain is kind of constructing our model of the world. Mm. Now, I mean, at the top of the, you know, to really kind of think about what, you know, well, what, what's at the top of this? You know, what are we actually trying to do? Well, one of the most important, I mean, one of the most important conjectures is that in fact, there's kind of like a self-model, a phenomenal self-model, which must emerge at some of these kind of higher levels in the hierarchy. And you know, I don't know. Well, well, I guess we'll get into that when we talk about mm. uh, the meditation. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to take a turn toward psychedelics and meditation and, and the nature of the self and just how flexible our um, interaction with reality might prove to be and just what, what is possible subjectively here to realize and, and how might that matter and how that might connect to human flourishing overall. Just to take one point of contact here is that you, you know, there's some evidence now that psychedelics in particular promote 
neuroplasticity and and uh, offering some clue as to how you know, a fairly short experience might create durable changes in one's sense of uh, one's being in the world. Strangely, I think it was a, a recent paper that suggested these are the neuroplasticity is mediated through intracellular 5-HT2A receptors, which are not, as many people know, psychedelics like LSD and, and uh, psilocybin are active uh, through serotonin receptors, but they, they obviously have a different effect than serotonin normally does. And the idea that they may be reaching inside the cell seemed, I mean, maybe that's been in the air for a while, but it was the first I heard of it, which struck me as interesting. But before we get there, let, let, I just want to see if we can make this picture of predictive coding and error detection somehow subjectively real for people. So, you know, you and I are having this conversation. My eyes are, are, have generally been open. I'm, I've been looking at a, a fairly static scene. I just have my desk in front of me. Nothing has been moving, right? There's no, there are no changes to the visual scene, really, apart from what is introduced by my moving my eyes around. And I've surveyed this scene you know, fairly continuously for the last 45 minutes as we've been speaking. And again, it's a scene of, of very little change, right? And, and yet I, I'm continuing to see everything. And some things, presumably, I'm, I'm, I'm now seeing for the first time as I pay attention in new ways. Now, if something fundamentally changed, if you know, a, a, a mouse suddenly leapt onto the surface of my desk and, and began scurrying across it, it would get a a strong reaction from me, and I, I would perceive the novelty. But before that happens, I, I'm perceiving everything quite vividly anyway, and nothing is changing. So in what sense is my perception merely a story of my continuous prediction errors with respect to the visual scene? Yeah, so, so the, I think the idea is that if, I mean, you are creating a simulation of what your best guess is on you know how in the contents of your desk and as you say if there is a if something like a mouse runs across your desk you know that would be something that would cause a very large prediction error and your attention would go to it in fact what we, we we didn't get into this, but there is actually a kind of a, a real a homologue of what attention is within the predictive processing framework. Essentially, what happens is that is that when you attend to something, you you give more weight to parts of the predictive processing hierarchy stack, and mm. specifically. You give more precision weighting to the sensory data, the likelihood of the data. And so you would say there's a very large prediction area here. And you would be, instead of your priors dominating the posterior, what you actually see, the sensory data would have a greater weight in determining the contents of the generative model. So, you, you know, this is a kind of a two-way street that's going on constantly between the, the likelihood of the data and the priors, your expectations. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting just to, to, to take a step back. You know, you're seeing this relatively constant scene in front of you. 
you know, presumably in these beautiful colors, in a cartoonish definition. And yet, if you look at what's coming through your eyes, I mean, you could only see a very small portion of the visual scene uh, at any one time because that's where, you know, your, your macula, the only part that sees in, in color and accurately is, is, is like a tiny portion of the visual field. And yet you're seeing everything clearly in color. So this kind of, you know, makes it very clear that what you are seeing is not your sensory data, but in fact, the output of your generative model. Yeah, just to remind people, so your peripheral vision, while it seems to you to be occurring in color, uh, it really isn't. I mean, you can test this. You can, you can have someone hold a colored object, however brightly colored you want, at the very edge of your peripheral field of view, you know, keeping your eyes forward, and you will find it impossible right at the edge to determine what that what the color of that that object is until it comes further into your field of view. And yet we we're not walking around feeling that our visual world is ringed with black and white imagery. Uh, and so it is with you know, as you point out, with the area of the vast region beyond the very narrow spot of foveal focus, right? I mean, you, you see something in focus, but the rest isn't in focus until you, you uh, direct your gaze to it. And yet we don't tend to notice that. And that's a, so it's, there's something, it's a little bit like a, you know, a video game engine that is just, you know, it's kind of, kind of rendering parts of the world when they're needed, but they're not, you know, they're just presumed otherwise. And we're, we seem to be, Content to live that way because it doesn't until we start bumping into hard objects that we didn't know were, were there. And it's the stability of all. I, I guess there's an, another piece here. We have, you know, we're constantly moving our eyes in what are called visual saccades, and we're effectively blind when we do that. For the brief moment of our eyes lurching around, we're not consciously getting visual data. And we're not noticing that either, right? So this, there, there are various clues, and you, you can notice that when you. If you go to a mirror and, and stare into your own eyes and then look around and then look back at your eyes, you never catch your eyes, you know, moving around. And there's this gap. And if you still doubt that, you can notice how different it is to move your eye by, you know, taking your finger and touching the side of your one of your eyes and jiggling it. And you can see how the, the world lurches around there. That's because your, you know, ocular motor cortex can't correct for that, that kind of motion in its kind of forward-looking copy of what it expects to see, because you're, you're accomplishing that with your finger. But when you move your eyes in the normal way, it's discounting the data of, that's being acquired during that movement. Uh, so in, in all these ways, you can see that you're not getting this crystal clear, comprehensive photographic image of the world when you're seeing. This is a, a piecemeal vision, again, based in, in large measure on on what you're expecting to see, and yet that's not consciously obvious. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and of course, you know, it's only when you go through meditation or experiences and psychedelics or, or you know, other, other times, you know, people can suddenly come to notice, ah, oh, you know, isn't it odd that when I push my eyeball, the whole world moves, you know, maybe, maybe what I'm seeing is a kind of a mental construction and not the world as it really is. So I want to talk about the self in particular and, and, and what um, 
we might describe as the self-model. I think Thomas Messinger, who's also been on the podcast, might have given us that phrase. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, 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 he's done phenomenal work on this uh, over the years. And, and I think that that's actually central, this Metzinger concept of the phenomenal self-model. But before we do it, many people will be um, interested in how psychedelics help us make sense of some of this, this neuroscience. Because, it, you know, unlike meditation, I mean, medita- there's obviously a fair amount of neuroscience done on meditation as well, but the strength of psychedelics is that you can take really anyone, there are some very rare exceptions to this, but, you know, virtually anyone can be sat down and given the requisite substance, and an hour later, uh, they're having uh, some very predictable and and sweeping changes made to their perception of the world, for better or worse. Almost no one comes away from a large dose of LSD or psilocybin saying nothing happened or it didn't work. Uh, whereas with meditation, as many people who have tried the practice know, many, many people simply bounce off the whole project. They, they close their eyes, they try to follow their breath, or they, you know, get, they use whatever technique has been given to them, and they feel like nothing has happened, right? There's just, it's just me here thinking, and you know, I do that all the time anyway, and they come away with the sense that yeah, it's not for them, or maybe it's, there's really nothing to it. It's just people are just deceiving themselves that there's anything especially important going on there. But psychedelics don't tend to have that effect on people. What do you think we know about psychedelics at this point that gives us some you know, perspective here? And I guess, perhaps you might describe, if you're willing, your own experience with psychedelics. Have they been an important part of your coming to be interested in any of this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, why don't we take the kind of the predictive processing theory that's out there in terms of how, what is the mechanism of action from a computational perspective, from an algorithmic perspective? How do psychedelics work? How do psychedelics change the way the brain is constructing our reality, our experience? So as we, as we discussed, you know, we have this kind of hierarchical predictive processing model in the brain, which is essentially generating our experience. And, you know, at the low levels, low level models, we have low level sensory percepts. And then at mid levels in the model, you might have like more complex visual processing and faces and motion and things like that. And at the very high end of the hierarchy, you have your core beliefs. You know, these are also models about how the world works, about concepts, about actually your kind of goals, you know, what you, what you want out of life. Now, one of the major, the leading theories how psychedelics work is, is um, uses the predictive processing framework and is called the Rebus model relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And the theory proposes that really what's going on in psychedelics is that psychedelics, by acting through the, through the 5-HT2A receptors, are essentially quietening the influence of the top-level priors, our core beliefs, our 
you know, the fundamental concepts that, that are at the top of your generative model. And so it's kind of like, I mean, the analogy that, that, that a number of people have used is like when you ski down a mountainside, you're normally skiing in the same grooved in tracks because, you know, because it's very difficult to get out of it. It's like, um, and psychedelics is essentially a fresh coat of powder snow for four to six hours or however long it lasts. Mm. And suddenly you're able to ski in completely new patterns without the influence of your top-level priors, your core beliefs, your presuppositions around the world. And for example, you know, you, you could have a presupposition that you know, if you're depressed, you know, one of your top-level priors might be, I'm a useless person, the, the world's a terrible place, everything always goes wrong, okay? And suddenly with psychedelics, you know, the, the precision weighting, the weighting of that prior in your overall generative model has been lowered. So suddenly you're seeing the world afresh, but somehow something's changed because these top-level models aren't infusing their influence right down the stack. And so you look around and you say, wow, the world's pretty amazing. It's like, it's really cool. It's, it's amazing. And you're ski down the mountainside and in these new ways. And that essentially sets up a kind of a cognitive dissonance. So the important thing is when your priors start coming back online, you now have a, a dissonance between your experience under psychedelics and your usual way of looking at the world. Suddenly, your usual assumption, your top-level prior, is questioned. And, you know, one of the thoughts might be is that uh, we are able to, you can think of psychedelics like essentially going into reprogramming mode, having quietened your top-level priors. Mm. You've got this flat landscape, this technically this kind of free energy landscape has been flattened. So you're no longer in these valleys that normally trap you. And then you're able to explore new ways of looking at the world new priors. And you say, well, actually, kind of the world's amazing. It's pretty much a miraculous gift. And then you could actually maintain that prior after the psychedelics wear off, because now you have evidence for it. Essentially, remember, it's all just Bayesian inference. So it's just about giving yourself new evidence for new prior beliefs. And, and this, is, this is very interesting. And so, you know, when we did that study at Imperial, where Essentially, pretty much everyone who had long-term treatment-resistant depression went into remission, at least for some period of time. This was kind of amazing. You know, this is, this is now, of course, many of them regressed and went, you know, the remission was only temporary, but perhaps because, you know, your patterns are reinstantiating these higher-level beliefs again, these top-level priors. But, you know, it's this, this, is, this is the kind of basic idea of how psychedelics might be working from a computational perspective. And I think it's, 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 in, it's interesting to think of it as a kind of a two-factor process. So essentially, this is one of the reasons why you might think that set and setting is so particularly important in psychedelics, because essentially, you, you go into reprogramming mode, you're kind of, you know, your priors are flattened, your top-level priors are fat, flattened out. Now, the philosophy or the set or the environment now influences the way you see the world, whatever's around. Mm. And 
that can anneal you into new, it can, can nudge you into new areas of the landscape. And so, you know, if you're primed to see the world in a certain way, you might end up taking that as a new prior belief, a new top level prior. Mm. You know, so I, I just want to to uh, unpack the uh, the terminology here because first of all, the, the the word prior is a term of jargon that is explicitly Bayesian. I mean, we talk about the, the Bayesian priors, the prior probability in that equation. So the, the uh, in, yeah, we in, can we, we we can just use actually beliefs, you know, right. higher and, level beliefs. But e- but even even the term belief, when when you say belief, many people will will, will limit that in their imagination to linguistically mediated propositional attitudes like i believe i'm a i'm a terrible person or i believe you know that you know capitalism is the one true uh, way to arrange an economy and i mean the, it, we, we include those i mean those are also organizing our perceptions and and you know, our, our acts of cognition and and emotion uh from you know some top or topmost layer but you're also talking about other sorts of, you know, perceptual schemas and and anything that could organize one's expectations that it, it may have right. no direct connection to language. Right, right. That's exactly. So, you know, this is a very tricky term. That's why I end up using the word prior because yeah. it's just become a bit of a term of art. Sometimes people talk about subpersonal beliefs and put beliefs in 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 inverted commas or whatever. This is a bit of an issue because, of course, we have our usual, we have the sort of folk psychology uh, view of belief. We have the view of belief around high-level propositions, as you said. But somehow this is encoding a core assumption or a top-level parameter, which kind of, you know, has similar features to a generalized form of belief in how, you know, that your generative model is is assuming, so it's it's a yeah. difficult one, and it, and it can be in so much. This is really the layer at which culture exerts this overwhelming constraint on our experience of the world. I mean, our, our expectations of, I mean, that this this is touch this is touches everything in human life. I mean, this, I mean, culture becomes a kind of operating system. For each individual mind, we have we have norms, you know, the, that we expect to be followed, and you know the violations of which we find shocking, and yet you know they, they can be totally culturally dependent. You know, you know, if you're in a traditional Muslim society, you know, seeing the exposed face of a woman might be you know shocking to you if you're a man or or, or if you're a woman, and yet you know you you would you wouldn't notice it in you know, in a Western or, or non-conservative Muslim context, because it would be your, your expectation. In fact, the opposite would be shocking. To see someone in a burqa on Madison Avenue is a bit of a surprise to most of us. And so things can just completely flip around based on cultural expectation. And, and it can be, and, and these influences are almost always taken for granted. We don't, we're not in the business, most of us, of constantly challenging and reconsidering are cultural encodings, yeah. and and so what psychedelics can do is, in relaxing all of these these weights in the in the in the these layers of the networks, you are left to you know to see the world you know, seemingly you know 
for the first time in many respects. And it's, yeah, it's like you're exactly. born anew and you can reconsider. And then, and then as the compound begins to lose its effect and you, and you begin to have your sense of self and, and your world you know, re-congeal, that process is this fascinating uh, and, again, all too piecemeal uh, and contingent and finally weird reacquisition of an entirely, you know, if not entirely, mostly provisional view, and again, contingent view of how things are and how things should be and must be. And there's a tremendous amount of, of psychological growth and shifting in perspective that can happen just by having that experience and returning to, quote, normal and remembering however dimly how different things were, you know, a mere few hours ago. I think actually you, you, you put it really well that imagine how it would be if you could strip away all your concepts, cultural baggage, the whole way of looking at the world that we find it almost transparent because it's so it's so much in the water we can't we know we don't even recognize it it's like the it's like the uh, old joke about you know a fish swimming in water and saying uh, well water what's that you know cuz you don't even recognize it so if we were to strip away all that suddenly and you were to see the world afresh you know how would that allow you to reconceptualize the world how much freedom would that give you potentially could you hone into different conceptual schemas? Could you hold your previous conceptual schemas more lightly? So what has been your experience personally, if any, with psychedelics? Yeah, so that's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. Are, are you I, free to discuss this as a I, I, I will. philanthropist I, and I, intellectual? I, 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 I will, because I haven't discussed it before in, in public, but but you know, it's like, I'm just a great believer in being as honest as possible nowadays. So, so yeah, psychedelics were a very important part of my journey. And unlike many people, I did not do any psychedelics until the age of 52. Hmm. And, you know, by then I had been meditating for 30 years. and. So for me, psychedelics opened up things in my meditation journey. I think they were, they have been very, very important to kind of what I would consider my, my kind of um, meditation path and journey. And, and it's really, really interesting. I mean, I think there's this, there is the, there's a two-way interaction between meditation and psychedelics. There aren't, a lot of uh, long-term meditate, a lot of data on long-term meditators and psychedelic interaction. But I think that, I mean, just this is just anecdotal. But after my first uh, psychedelic journey, which was which was mushrooms, the morning after, in my morning meditation, I went into something called the formless jhanas, which are mm. these very vast, expanded states of consciousness. And uh, presumably, you'd been doing jhana practice before that. Well, actually, not really. So my shamatha, mm -hmm. you know, and at that's—I mean, I know it sounds funny to say this, but like 
that stage, I didn't even know what genres were, which mm-hmm. just makes it makes right. it makes it very interesting. <laughs> but you, but it, actually, it sounds like you've since done genre practice. And yes, yeah. and and the interesting thing is when I learned about the genres formally, I I said, ah, oh, look, this is exactly my experience, and you know that's one of the reasons why I think that these things are not scripted at all. They're kind of essentially the way I'd put it, kind of a, from a technical mathematical perspective, genres are unfolding the eigenvectors of experience one by one. <laughs> mm. You know, they're sort of deconstructing experience in a, in a, in a systematic way. But, but to come back to psychedelics, I mean, I think that, you know, some of my deepest insights, spiritual insights, have come from psychedelic journeys. And very interestingly, it's almost like nowadays my, you know, my meditation has to catch up to the deepest insights that come from that have come from psychedelics. So I actually, you know, I really haven't done any psychedelics for a year, and I don't even think I may may not do any more. I'm not sure, hmm. but but and that's partly because there's this sort of sense that I have from, to, I think to quote Alan Watts, you know, when you when you receive the message, uh, when yeah, you receive the message, the phone, hang yeah. up the receiver, yeah, right? right. Something like that. Yeah. But, but I would say that, that they really have been deeply, deeply important. And, and I think that the journey really becomes what you get opened up to in psychedelics. Can you make that a normal, everyday reality? Can you, mm. can you have those insights? Can you have that perception out there in the normal world you know, with, the, <laughs> with all the trials and tribulations? of uh, normal experience, mm. normal, normal life. Well, well, let's talk about what that perception is or what, what the target state or insight is. And this, I think this will bring us to the, the concept of non-duality. Actually, what, one more question about drugs, though. Uh, have you taken MDMA? I know it's not a classic psychedelic, but do you have experience I, with that? I, I have not, although, mm. you know, that is something that I have thought about recently is thinking that, you know, this is another one of the com- compounds that could be very, mm-hmm. very interesting, but I haven't done it myself. Yeah. Well, so it, w- it was really formative for me. I mean, it was the first drug I took when I was, uh, I think, 18 that, that indicated to me that there was something important to discover about the nature of my mind. And that it was, really, it was, so it was the, the proximate cause of my getting into meditation and sitting in retreats and ultimately becoming interested in, in the nature of consciousness and studying the brain. But I, I hadn't taken it for... So unlike you, I, I, I took psychedelics early in, in my early 20s. But then I stopped because I, I got really two reasons. One is I, I had a few trips on LSD that, that really showed me the, the other side of the coin, the, you know, the psychotomimetic side, where these are really... Uh, you, can, you can have an experience not just of the beatific vision you can you can have uh, uh, you can get plunged into frank psychosis and I, I experienced that i felt a couple you know that spin of the roulette wheel a couple of times and i thought this is just not really worth it i mean the good trips seemed neurologically quite healthy and the bad trips seemed commensurately unhealthy to me and um i don't know if there's any data on this but it does seem to me intuitively that you know, to ask the question whether a psychedelic like LSD or, or psilocybin is, is good or bad for you 
is really to ask a the question of what sort of experience you wind up having on it, because uh, you know, unlike some other drugs, including MDMA, they seem you know, just physiologically quite benign, and uh, you know, the, I, I don't think there is really an acknowledged lethal dose of a, a drug like LSD. Uh, you know, unlike every other drug, including aspirin, and yet you can have uh, an experience that leaves you feeling much healthier neurologically for days and weeks and even months thereafter. And in my experience, you can have a you can have one that leaves you feeling worse off for a similar amount of time. But with MDMA, again, it's not a a classic psychedelic. It's usually described now as an empathogen or an intactogen which is to say it doesn't really alter your perception of the world very much it if at all it it, it alters your your emotional sense of who you are and when, and what is significant to pay attention to or think about but so i i did a bunch of psychedelics and mdma several times in my 20s and then i i had a 25 plus year hiatus and then took a, a whopping dose of mushrooms uh, I think right before I spoke to um, Roland Griffiths on the podcast, I, and then I, I described that trip. And I also hadn't taken MDMA for at least, I think it was at least 30 years, but took it again recently. And it's interesting. I, I you know, it seems to have made a, a fairly durable change in my meditation practice, and in, in a way that may only be important in the sense that it has made me want to meditate more than I tend to, right? So it's like it has made simply sitting quietly more viscerally attractive to me, given the experience I had, you know, you know meditating while on, on MDMA recently. And it was... Oh, that's, that's, a, did you, did you, um, so you meditated during the... the... Yeah, yeah. So I, so I mean, just to give people some context, and you know, all the, the usual caveats apply, these are illegal drugs in most places. MDMA, unlike LSD or psilocybin, certainly has a lethal dose, and it's, you can screw up taking it, and I think it strikes many as, you know, whether it's neurologically benign, it's uh, not so obviously so as something like psilocybin or LSD, but conversely, you're unlikely to have a terrifying experience of psychosis while on MDMA. It's a very predictable experience for most people provided what you're taking is actually MDMA and not something adulterated that you got off the street and have no idea what you're taking. So again, I'm not, I'm not recommending that anyone go out and take MDMA on the basis of this, but I'm just being honest about the implications of a recent experience. So to kind of hit this topic of non-duality at a running start, we'll have to, people who are listening to this over at Waking Up will very likely understand what I'm talking about. The, the Making Sense listeners will maybe some flavor of confused, but so the, the, the insight into non-duality that many of us feel that we've had through meditation puts the whole project of having contemplative insights through meditation in a slightly different, I mean, really it becomes somewhat orthogonal to the experience of psychedelics because the, the virtue of psychedelics is, is largely a matter of how they make sweeping changes in the contents of consciousness, uh, whereas the non-dual insight into the nature of consciousness that one can have through meditation is that consciousness itself is intrinsically free of, of self, of there being a, a subject in the middle of it, an ego in the middle of it, appropriating experience. 
And that's true whatever the contents of consciousness. And you can have that insight in the most ordinary states of mind. I mean, you can be looking at your email and recognize that there is no self looking out through your eyes looking at that email. And there's a freedom from self, you know, by definition, to be found in that. And, and it's the implications of that freedom that one is then working out in one's practice and in one's living the rest of one's life. And again, it's, it is really orthogonal to any changes in state, and you can recognize selflessness in the midst of anxiety. You can recognize it in the midst of, of you know, feeling physical pain from an injury. Uh, and you can also recognize it, as luck would have it, in the midst of feeling unconditional love while you know, taking MDMA or in the midst of the most transformative changes in one's perceptual engagement with the world. Uh, you know, on a, uh, a large dose of, of psilocybin or LSD. So the question is, so during this MDMA trip, I was really asking myself two questions, you know, from the point of view of non-duality. I, I was interested to see if anything was really different. Like, like, so I'm experiencing a radical change in the energetics of my sense of, of embodiment. An hour into this trip, the way I feel physically is, you know, from a, a, a meditative point of view, I mean, I close my eyes and I just feel, you know, the, the sense of my body resting in space. The energetics of all of that is much more like the, the absolute peak of a, a three-month silent retreat than it is, you know, in my normal waking experience of, of just paying attention, just being mindful of my body. And is and, that in terms of quietness or is it in terms of energy like peak sensations? Both. Yeah. I mean, just like the, you know, the disappear, the vanishing of the body, the, the feeling of just the wattage of, of the, the, the energy of it. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you are, I mean, the moment you begin to think of your connection to the world or to other people, you know, holding someone's hand becomes an experience, not of ordinary perception of, pressure and warmth, but just this thousand watt connection to another being, right? And it's part of that is just how your the pipes in your, your nervous system generally have just been flushed out by this tremendous, you know, onrushing of, of energy, which uh, I guess under one framing could make someone anxious, but, you know, un, under the more auspicious framing can immediately feel like this just overwhelming experience of love and gratitude. I mean, you're just, you know, it's like the, the emotional tone of the experience is, again, I'm, I'm just speaking from my experience, but it seems fairly well borne out in the experiences of others. And this, this actually did happen to me on, on that most recent mushroom trip as well. It's like being plunged into the, the platonic form of gratitude, right? It's like, you know, if gratitude was a place in the galaxy you know, you have just been bodily hurled there without residue, mm. right? And so it's like your nervous system w was designed to feel nothing but gratitude or, or love, you know, depending on kind of the, the valence it's getting. But, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about the people in your life or you're, you're interacting with somebody, you know, the, the state of being that is unconditional love is, is what you are in success here. And do you, do you, have you found that that's actually continued in the meditation practice now? Yeah. So I was saying, I was asking myself two questions during this trip from the point of view of, of you know, non-dual practice. Is, you know, one is, 
is this really different? I mean, this you know, in terms of the contents of consciousness, it's, there's an un- not undeniable difference here. It's like I do not tend to feel this way in my life, and yet if I recognize what consciousness is like without a center, is there some place from which to recognize that this is the way consciousness always already is, right? Is this, is this also email Sam too? Which is to say, I mean, you know, that which is aware of unconditional love and infinite gratitude is also that which is aware of boring email. Mm. And falling back into that, is, is my freedom truly there? Is that enough? Or is there some real improvement to be had by experiencing unconditional love and, and infinite gratitude? And, you know, I mean, this, this is speaking to, you know, what in, in Dzogchen teachings and, and perhaps Vajrayana teachings more generally is, is often referred to as one taste, right? This, mm-hmm. this idea that non-duality equalizes experience or like, you know, unconditional love really isn't much better than or any better than email if you can recognize the, the, the nature of mind or the, the non-duality of awareness. And while I've tended to be convinced of that, it's reasonable to worry whether that is an, an over-intellectualization of the project, and wouldn't it just be better to be unconditionally loving and deeply compassionate and filled with joy and, yeah. and just you know, plugged into all of these conditional states of being that are wonderful and that spill over into these pro-social attitudes and behaviors that make you a very different presence in the world, right? I mean, you simply are different if you're walking down the street feeling unconditional love than if you're walking down the street feeling centerless but ordinary, right? And so I was thinking about that and trying to to work out the implications of that. But then I, I was also thinking, well, if my daily practice was more like this, I would want to do it more. I mean, like, like I would want to... You know, there's absolutely nothing I want to do now other than meditate in the in the throes of this truly deep and wonderful experience. I mean, to close your eyes and to feel something like a you know infinite gratitude and otherwise just a you know, an ocean of silence. That is such an attractive experience that even if the contents of consciousness don't ultimately matter. If my underlying goal is to stabilize this whole project of recognizing non-duality so often that it never ceases to be obvious, why wouldn't I want to you know, grab the coattails of, of smoother and smoother experience so as to be inspired to do that, to be inspired to practice more, to be inspired to simplify my life and attention more? And so it's just like it, it would just be useful just pragmatically if my mind was more and more like this. And so anyway, you know, I was thinking that and came down from this experience as one does, but have found in, you know, since then, and now it's probably 10 days out, that my meditation experience really is, I mean, so it's almost like I've been given a kind of firmware upgrade where it's like I, I'm in touch much more readily with the energetics of that state, just the moment I I close my eyes and pay attention, or not necessarily close my eyes, but the moment I just become mindful, and it's it's really quite wonderful. So, so I mean, this is just a very long infomercial for you on perhaps the utility of experimenting with MDMA if you're interested. But it's I don't you know honestly I don't as strong as that last mushroom experience was I don't I don't recall it having that effect on my 
on my practice in, in any kind of durable way. So anyway, it was just, this is, uh, yeah. you're, you're you getting know, me on the heels of my <laughs> considering this. Uh, the, the, you know, that really sounds very, very important. And <laughs> you're right. I'm, uh, I'm really, I'm feeling kind of drawn to that. I mean, I mean, it, you know, just on this question of the, the importance of this kind of, ex, of, of experience, I mean, one thing is that, you know, the Hindus describe this sort of non-dual status kind of satchitananda, the ananda mm. part yeah. is, is really important. And Let's define those terms because people are not necessarily uh, Hindu files the way, the way we are. Yeah. So, uh, well, I, uh, the, you know, this, this triple, this, uh, this, this word sat, chetananda, sat could be referring to being, truth, kind of more formally, but being, mm. chet is consciousness or awareness, and ananda often is described as bliss, but I think, you know, it's got all these flavors of bliss, peace, love, maybe gratitude. And what's very interesting is, you know, I gave this talk on, on, on meditation and then, you know, someone put up their hand to say, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, you talk about this non-dual awareness, what, what was bliss doing there, <laughs> you know? And it's a good question. And I often think myself, you know, is, is this bliss, love, is, is love an inherent part of, non, you know, of this non-dual awareness or is it the earliest the, the response of the human nervous system to the earliest level of fabrication. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that when everything is okay, there is no problem. When everything is accepted within awareness, so everything can arise, everything's accepted, everything is, is, is at home, you know, that could be like equanimity and peace because everything's allowed in the sky. But also, it's all inclusive, it's held. And that heldness can be like, can, 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 can turn to the flavor of love. So I, I kind of, you know, go back and forth in my own practice to think, is this, is this a very subtle fabrication or is it really inherently a kind of a, a loving awareness? I think, it, you know, it reminds me of the way the, the uh, Brahma Viharas appear. It's like, like when you think of un, unconditional love or you know, lo- loving kindness in in Buddhist practice, and compassion and sympathetic joy. I guess we can leave equanimity aside here, but those strike me. I mean, they're trained separately. They're, they have different targets. And when you're thinking about compassion, when you're, when you're trying to cultivate compassion in a meditative sense, you're focusing on the suffering of others and your, and your desire to relieve it. And when you're focusing on on sympathetic joy, you're, you're focusing on the happiness of others and, and, and your own you know, desire to, to celebrate it. And yet, those both strike me just as love in given a change of object, right? If you're, if you're in this condition of, this default condition of, of loving other people, wanting, wishing them well, wanting their, their hopes and dreams to be realized, then when you see someone suffering, you effortless, your love effortlessly feels like compassion. And when you see them made happy by something, your love effortlessly feels like sympathetic joy. You, you, you know, your, their smile becomes your smile. And I, you know, so I would say, I mean, to take your point, which I think is a, a very interesting one, is, is love a kind of 
subtle dualistic fabrication. Uh, well, certainly love of another person is because the, the dualism is built right in there, right? Like insofar as you're reifying them as another person, you're, you know, you're, you're already playing the concept game to some degree. So it does feel to me like, like what, we, you know, what, what could be appropriately called bliss is the unfabricated energy state that gets elaborated as love, as compassion, as sympathetic joy, as gratitude, as, I mean, g- given the, the appropriate lens, you know, which is, which is of mm. necessity some form of concept. You're, you're thinking about something. You're targeting something dualistically when you're, when you're thinking about other beings, you know, who you care about. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that, I mean, the, the, the wrongness is felt in one's suffering uh, when one has no other alternative but to reify, in particular, reify oneself in relation to those others. Yeah, yeah. I also have one, one, one other thought, which is that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, it seems like a useful thing <laughs> to develop this love as a part of life. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just, you know, this, this kind of purest, purest, you know, maybe Zogchen lens of saying, doesn't matter about the contents of consciousness. I, I, would, I would think that if we think about it from a human flourishing point of view, from the relative perspective, we actually want to develop certain priors. I'll use that again, a certain kind of beliefs. Mm. Specifically, you know, the kind of virtues of being a loving person, having a lot of gratitude. These are sort of high-level priors, you know, what Aristotle would call the virtues. You know, they're, they're, they're dispositions of emotional reactivity. And, and in a sense, to, as Aristotle sort of put it, to create that disposition, we need the habit of it. And so by doing a long-term meditation practice, maybe primed by MDMA, you could actually habituate yourself into developing these super helpful priors, helpful from the point of view of human flourishing. So I kind of, I, I, I do think that it's, you know, that in some deep sense, any life, any contents of, uh, of awareness will always do, right? It's all perfect mm. from, from a certain perspective. However, there is something very important about living in the relative life, living in the world as we find it and, and um, making the universe more beautiful, if you, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. How do you make sense of the claim? Again, I've made it here and many, many times in other contexts that the self is an illusion uh, or a construct, or I don't know what yeah. words you, you would prefer, and that we can perceive the world and ourselves within it from a, a prior point of view, right? That, that isn't identified with the normal sense of, of subjectivity. The other way of coming at this is to talk about things like non-duality or the Buddhist concept of emptiness. Um, how, how do you think about that, and how would you encourage people who haven't had that experience to think about it in the context of what we've been talking about—the brain and science generally—and you know—and and why is any of that relevant for this larger question of, of human flourishing? Right. Okay. Great. So I think. You know, let's let's take it from the kind of predictive processing 
worldview that, that we talked about before. And as we discussed, the purpose of experience is to ultimately allow us to survive. You know, that's, that's the, the ultimate purpose, that's the evolutionary purpose. And in order to survive, we have to understand what's going on in the world and in, in our environment. But that's not enough. We also need to understand, to have within that simulated reality, a model of us as an agent. So that includes a sort of, if you like, a little avatar in the generative model, which is the mini-me kind of avatar. It includes a sense of perspectivity. You know, I'm here, the line is over there. It necessarily includes sort of multi-sensory integration. These things, these are my sensations. This is not me. And it sets up a kind of a subject-object duality. So basically, we need a phenomenal self-model. Now, the thing is that that model, the normal experience is that we think we are that model. We, we're actually kind of living within our simulation. And we think we are the little mm. avatar in that model. In fact, worse still, we think we are somewhere behind the eyes of that avatar. You know, like that's where I'm really conscious or something like that. Of course, we don't recognize that all of this experience that we're including the room that you're in or the outside and, and the avatar and all your body sensations and your thoughts and the sounds that you're hearing are all in awareness. So there is this very, very useful idea of having a phenomenal self-model, useful from the point of view of navigating around the world and being, being successful in achieving what we need to achieve as human beings, you know, getting food and surviving. Now, the problem is that that model, that phenomenal self-model, is transparent. Now, I just want to, this is a bit of a jargon word, and it's important to unpack it because meditators may misinterpret that word. So, you know, if you're looking out of the window and you're seeing the tree, you, you know, you're just seeing the tree. But at some point, you, you, you sort of recognize that you're looking through a window pane. And then suddenly that window pane becomes opaque. It, 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 it's there. And um, before it was just transparent. You, weren't, you thought you were seeing the tree, but actually you're seeing it through the window pane. Now here, the, the window pane is representing the model of the self, the phenomenal self model. So for most, you know, for, for, for most people, the, the self-model is entirely transparent. They really think that that's, that's what they are. But meditation can slowly start making this model opaque. Now, that doesn't mean that parts of the self-model suddenly just dissolve and disappear. What it means is that it becomes, to use this for this jargon word that you, that you mentioned, it becomes empty. That means you recognize that this self-model is just a model. It's just a construction. Now, often Buddhists sometimes say that the self is illusory, and that's one way of, of, of seeing this. I like to say that the self is empty in the sense that it's just a construction. It lacks inherent existence. And What's important, in a way, uh, in meditation is to recognize that, ah, oh, look, this is just a construction. And it's part of a wider project of seeing 
everything is empty. When you see not just the self is empty, but all phenomena is empty, then you start getting to this kind of non-dual experience where you start to recognize that this is all just arising within awareness. And if you like the predictive processing view on things, you suddenly wake up to the generative model itself. You suddenly wake mm. up to the substrate of the generative model. You, you wake up to the piece of paper on which the generative model is drawing all these things like a little self-model and a tree and, a, and body sensations and stuff like that. It's all drawn on a piece of paper on a, on a substrate of the generative model, a background awareness, a non-dual awareness. And we can then, what can happen is that rather than identifying with the contents of one particular part of your generative model, like the phenomenal self-model, you can stop identifying with it. You can either identify with the whole model itself, the whole space of the model, the whole perceptual space, the non-dual awareness, Hmm. and that's sometimes called true self or capital S self. Or you could get come at this from a different perspective, you say an early Buddhist perspective and say, no self. You know, there is just the buzzing, burbling phenomena arising and passing within awareness. And that's kind of no self view. And, you know, then you can even go further and say, well, kind of it's arbitrary what you take a unit of identification to be. You can say no self, you can say true self, you can actually play eventually become a master of the generative model and have you know look at a statue and have it look back at you and can somehow more like some in Mm. some weird way have that statue kind of have more of um, a quality of being you than any other part of the generative model and um yeah so that's Mm. that's 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 my take on um on no self or true self. Yeah, I, I think, um, I guess the only quibble I might have with it, now, now I'm remembering a, a, the argument I had with uh, Evan Thompson on the podcast, because he really didn't like my use of illusory to uh, denigrate the self. He was willing, I believe, uh, sorry, Evan, if I'm getting you not perfectly accurately here, but I, I believe he was comfortable with the self as a construct but distinctly uncomfortable with the idea that it might be an illusion. And uh, you, you seem to have made a similar distinction there between empty and illusory. I, I actually, I would, I, I would, I go along with illusory. I mean, for me, being empty means illusory. I mean, it's not real. It's de-reified. It's mm. not real. And I think, so, I mean, I think that everything is empty. I think that it's all day reified. I think mm-hmm. there, you know, and and but I guess there's two senses in which something can be unreal or not as it seems. And I'll just think out loud here and see if I still agree with myself here. So, you know, emptiness is there are many different ways to come at the concept, but one is to recognize that something, something that seems to be, you know, independently existing. When you analyze it conceptually, you see that. It is not really a thing in itself. It is a, an interrelation among parts. I mean, you can do this with a, you know, classically with a with a chariot or a car, or you know any other object, and you can do it with a person certainly. So you know you can imagine a person without a hand. You can imagine a person without a liver. They're still a person. 
but you take away enough parts, there's no person there, and yet personhood can't be in, in any one of the parts because we couldn't talk about a person without any of those parts in that case. And so as you analyze the concept of person, you see that it's poorly defined and it's just a kind of this aggregation of relationships and there's no thing in itself there in the middle of it that is really existing. And that, you know, that's the, sort of the, the analytical concept of emptiness as apart from the direct experience of it. And yet the self that most people think they have is something other than being a person, right? So we have, we represent a world, we represent our bodies in the world, and then we, most of us, are led through, you know, some stage of development, presumably, to represent a self internal to the body, as, as almost as a kind of passenger, you know, something that's very likely in the head, that appears to be a locus of consciousness, a locus of attention, a locus of will and discursivity, a, a thinker of thoughts, an experiencer of experience. And people feel that, they, therefore, that there's, there's experience, and then there's the one who's having the experience, and the one who's having the experience isn't quite the body. In fact, the body is part of the experience. The body is, is almost part of the world, uh, although it's different than the rest of the world. But really, there's this there's this vulnerable passenger who is paying attention and who's worried about the future and, and regretful about the past and seeks to be gratified in each moment. And it's, I mean, to use an, there are many analogies here that could make this intuitive, but it's almost like, you know, we, we feel like we're a character in, in a film. You know, the, if our life is a film, uh, we're the primary character, we're the protagonist. And yet, you know, on your account, which I agree with, Rather, we are we are the yeah, film. We're we're just this we're just the screen on which is happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's kind of another use of the the analogy. But here, I'm going just for the difference between the experiencer and experience. As a matter of phenomenology, as a matter of subjectivity, there is just experience, and one of our experiences is this little wrinkle in experience we call the self, the sense that there's a someone having the experience, the fact, the sense that there's a center to experience. And what meditation, or at least you know, non-dual practice, can reveal is that there is no center. It's not that the center is different than you thought it was. It's that you can actually lose the sense that there's a center. Yeah. And that's different than saying that the person doesn't exist. I mean, the, the person is empty, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying that people are illusions, but this sense of self, the sense of being that uh, there being an experiential center, that's not itself just the totality of experience. That really is an illusion that can vaporize when you pay attention to it. I I absolutely agree. I mean, there mm. there is like, you know, when you say, "Oh, this is my arm," and this is you know my leg, it's like, who is that me that the leg is. Is belonging to like it's it's it is an illusion and and I would say actually it's not just that there's one there's a whole series of them I, I mean you you mentioned sort of no center there's I would say that this sense of self is illusory and it's also a composite this is mm. what I was trying to point to that there is something that you can dissolve in, in, if you do this very carefully, like in a Mahamudra stack, you can come to see the emptiness that there is no center of awareness, right? There is no, um, there is, yeah, there's no center of awareness. You can come, to, then separately, you can come to see 
find the emptiness of the doer, the sense of agency. Hmm. You know, you can unwind and see the illusory nature of the self and its <laughs> illusory component parts, uh, like the doer, like the center of consciousness. Yeah, and in each channel, in each perceptual channel, so for with respect to seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or touching. And But my point is that actually, so that turning off the sense of mine, me and mindness, turning off the model of agency, you know, these are all separate things that you uh, in, in a sense, see as opaque, you know, d- 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 see as constructions. But I say that actually all of them eventually are seen as constructions. So, I mean, so initially when you go through your meditation, you know, you'll see thoughts as empty and emotions as empty and body sensations as, as, as you know, sort of so, uh, solid body sensations then become unfabricated and, and a body map and proprioception, a, mm. a personal sense of, a, a personal narrative that's another angle that's just seen as yeah. empty, as illusory, um, sort of even, and just on external things, you know, or internal things, you know, objectness, sort of the reification, this, this can become empty. Sounds, it's very interesting how sounds become empty and, and they're seen ultimately as, as composed out of pure awareness, out of non-dual awareness in the same way as this, and in some sense, not different from the silence. Motion can be empty. Um, experience of, well, we talked about this experience of mindness or even a sense of perspectivity. So you can lose a sense of consciousness, uh, of the center of consciousness. You can also dissolve a sense of perspectivity, even, you know, um, separately. And then, of course, there are the classic ones like dissolving or seeing as empty space, that space is a construction, that time is a construction. So I, 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 that's what I was going for with that look. Mm. It's all empty. <laughs> so then what, what is the connection between all of this highfalutin stuff and human flourishing? Because for, for someone who hasn't experienced any of this, everything, just the, the litany of deconstructions you just went through can sound like a recipe for madness, right? I mean, how is this right. just, it doesn't well, just pitch someone into frank psychosis. So, so, well, three things I'd say there. The first thing I'd say is that, in fact, I don't know who said this. I think it's probably Aldous Huxley, but mystics swim in those same waters that the mentally ill drown in. So mm. actually, we need to take this stuff seriously. The second point is that actually going down the emptiness stack, going down to deconstructing is not the end point of the path. Going down to kind of a nirvakalpa samadhi or a cessation or, or, or you know, minimal phenomenal experiences, as, as Thomas Metzinger has coined it, is not the point. Yes, you're unfabricating. The real point is the reconstruction part of the journey, in the sense that can we then come back in the world, but somehow retain the opacity of the models? So we kind of know deep down, we, 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 it's, it's part of our generative model now that these things are reified. Now, why would we, why is that important? This is something, it's, it's difficult, but I'm going to give two or three answers, which, you know, because this is early speculations on this stuff, on, but, but two or three answers which may or may not be compatible somehow eventually. 
The first is that the stickiness of concepts, the sort of, when you have, you know, the, the grasping, the aversion and craving is associated with the concepts. When you see the concept as empty, what tends to happen is that the pushing and pulling associated with that concept goes away. It's, it's sort of like, you know, you've got this pain in your knee and you're, you're sitting there, but when it turns into this buzzing flow of low-level sensory percepts, this sort of fine mist of vibrations, for example, that can tend to lose its valence, its, its, its sort of valence of, I don't want this. You can sort of tend to dissolve it away. So, so I would say that it's possible to reconstruct the world in such a way that the, the strength of the valence can be reduced. Now, another way of thinking about it, and this may be probably maybe the same way, is that uh, remember I talked about these high-level priors. Well, the highest-level priors is our kind of preferences, our wants and not wants. Now, those, as we said, we you know the, the purpose of a meditation journey is to come to see all these layers as empty, all these priors, and and be able to modulate them. And the high-level priors include our preferences, goals. And so they tend to lose their grip. In other words, in, in other words these, these goals, these, these preferences, these rewards or aversions are, you know, what we're aversive to, they're quietened. They, they, they fought their, the precision weighting of these top-level prizes reduced. In other words, they, they kind of don't form as strong a part of our sensory, of our experience. Now, what that tends to do is it gives you more room between stimulus and response. So normally you'd have some sort of stimulus, you'd go, I don't want that. And then you'd immediately respond. Now you've suddenly got the possibility of not reacting. And of course, that sets up extinction therapy, which is, you know, you start to unwind that pattern. And that's a very important part of the journey of human flourishing. It's essentially the the process of creating you know good emotional patterns which can be very helpful for human flourishing and 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 then there's another way of thinking about it um, from a predictive processing viewpoint and that is that you know the sort of preferences and goals and rewards that drive us in life buffet us around are actually in the predictive processing framework, are considered to be priors, high-level priors. Now, as we start to see these higher-level priors, these kind of preferences or beliefs as empty, they actually, again, in a similar way, tend to lose their grip. And that's like a very, very deep, deep mechanism. And then a final, another mechanism, and these, as I said, these may all be related eventually, but is that by seeing the self as empty or as illusory, a lot of the kind of normal goals and, and wants and, and not wants associated around the self go away. The sort of basic selfishness goes away, and we start to, to act in the world that is less selfish, and that is directly probably going to have an impact on, on human flourishing in general. Mm. So, so I would say that that you know, it's a really good question to say, why on earth would we want to kind of 
you know, see all these models as empty? And the answer is because it allows us to essentially reprogram ourselves, see the world in a different way, see, construct the world in a different way, in a way that is, allows us to reprogram ourselves, become less selfish, and become less buffeted around by, the, um, by our um, emotional patterns. So, Shamil, I'm now um, increasingly mindful of how long I've kept you. We've had some technical difficulties as well, so this has gone on longer than I've uh, expected based on my priors, but uh, I've, lo- I've loved every minute of it apart from those technical difficulties. So just a, a final question around the largest conception of human flourishing and what we've come to describe as effective altruism. Uh, unfortunately, this, this movement in philanthropy has gotten some very bad press of late with the, um, the immolation, uh, really self-immolation, of Sam Bankman-Fried. And uh, I haven't talked about it much, but I, I've, you know, when I've touched that topic, it, it's, it's, uh, I've just argued that the project of effective altruism is perfectly divorceable from the dubious uh, career of any one individual who was you know, however prominently attached to that movement. I mean, from my point of view, you know, what I've gotten from, from my conversations with people like Will McCaskill and Toby Ord and, and other effective altruists, Peter Singer, I guess, is the, the ultimate patriarch here, is that it, if you want to do good in the world, it is rational and only decent to pay attention to the actual effects of one's actions and, and marshalling of resources which is to say that you should care about or you know one organization doing 10 times more with with every dollar than another uh, and you should care about the most significant causes of suffering and death as opposed to you know less significant causes and the important insight here is that the, those differences often fail to track what makes us most empathically engaged with the project of helping others, which is to say that we know that we're gamed by good stories and good images and and single protagonists, and that we tend to not be so engaged by boring statistics and probabilities, and even if behind those numbers, much greater suffering and greater risk is being indicated. And so we know that our, our we've got some moral bugs to get past in arranging our priorities when it comes time to helping people. And effective altruism is just the name for the young movement, which has done that most systematically, you know, divorcing the good feels that we get from giving to the, from the actual consequences of, of giving. And um, so I'm just wondering what, what your experience has been in that space and, and, and how you're thinking, how you're currently thinking about doing good in the world. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I think I, I, was drawn to effective altruism early on. And, you know, for me, these recent events have been, you know, kind of unfortunate, but in a way, it gives the movement a way to rethink or to refresh what are the core principles. And I really like, Toby Ord gave a talk at the EA Global uh, recently, which I really, really like, because he goes back to first principles and says, "Look, you know, when 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 they created effective altruism, what were they trying to do? They weren't trying to be 
hyper-utilitarian and including all the kind of, you know, strange counterintuitive um, consequences of being hyper-utilitarian. They were actually trying to say, look, let's be pragmatic. What are the kind of low-hanging fruit from an ethical perspective? And, you know, there are, there really is some low-hanging fruit, as you said, like there will be charitable organizations that tend to do an order of magnitude more benefit than others. And it only makes sense to, to kind of make sure that they get more money than, than the others. So my own, my own perspective is that I think the effective altruism movement will benefit from, from this in the long run because there'll be less willingness to have, let me put it like, non-common sense there'll be less willingness to to hold non-common sense views in other words mm. you know there'll be there'll be more worry around do how much do i trust my model of things and there'll be more weight given to well let's find things that work on pretty much every model right and um you know i i i think uh, it's from a moral perspective it's very helpful to have the EA movement there and keeping everyone on their toes to say, look, you know, am I just giving to charities to make me feel better or just giving my local things that I know about rather than things that are really ultimately important? I think these are still deeply important and need to be more widely embraced. Yeah, the, the big insight for me personally, the, the, the one that really changed the pattern of my giving, is to recognize that the feeling better, the feeling good, the, you know, the peak experience of, of empathy and the reward one gets from giving and, and you know, helping others, that is a transitory state of consciousness, which can, again, be cued more or less in ways that are, really don't track the amount of good being done. I just came to recognize that I could, if you look at the effect on my, my mind and emotion over the course of a day, I could have a, you know, an exchange in a, in a coffee shop you know, while you know, holding the door open for some stranger that would give me a greater warm glow than, than my writing a rather large check to a, a wonderful organization that's going to save many, many lives with that money. And so if I'm going by the warm glow, I'm going to be misled with respect to how much good I'm doing or can do uh, on any given day. And ultimately, you know, while the warm glow is nice, I can get my glow in, in many other ways. And what I really want to do is just rationally decide how much good I'm committed to doing in any given period of my life and on what fronts, and then really automate that process. I mean, just, you know, commit in advance to give a certain amount in certain ways and make it non-negotiable, which is to say, no longer vulnerable to my waking up each day inspired to care about these specific causes. You know, because I know that my concern about malaria or anything else waxes and wanes over the course of, of a year or a decade. And it's not to say that I can't change my priorities based on new evidence and argument. I, I certainly can and will, but those are moments of deliberation which come, you know, once a quarter. And in between those moments, I just want to be doing 
you know, all the good I'm going to do without any friction in the system. And, and, and inspiration and, and good feels is really part of the friction, right? Because if you're relying on it, it's not reliable. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, what you're describing here, in a way, has been the, is basically what philosophers have, have talked about from the ancients onwards. But I mean, I think Hume put it the best, which is, you know, he, he kind of said, look, we got these um, natural virtues, which is, you know, feeling good. But when, we, when it comes to morality, we need to compensate for the fact that I could help someone that's close to me, who's near to me, but just as in perception, you know, when someone's far away, they look very small, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's there in our experience, but we compensate for that. We know that actually they're still six foot or whatever. And just like that, we need to do the same thing in, in ethics. And that was how Hume moved to his model of, of morality, which is basically just a kind of a compensation for the fact not based around us. We, mm. have to, we have to kind of be rational about this, you know, and, 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 and it's important, but he understood that it starts in that basic human compassion, but we need to adjust it for the perspective effect, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, Shamil, we have uh, many things in common. It's great to connect with you, and uh, I just want to praise you for everything you have been doing. I, I love the fact that you've been not only intellectually engaged with the content of these topics, but actually helping others to do research in, in many of these areas and just promoting these various causes. It's great that you're doing that, and um, we need uh, a thousand people like you, then we'll, then we'll know we're, we're on to something. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been amazing. Uh, it's been a wide-ranging uh, conversation. Well, until next time. All right. Great. Thanks. <laughs>